As we come to chapter 13 in the book of Joshua, we come to a transition point. Couldn't be marked out any more clearly than it is already in verse 1 of chapter 13. When God comes to Joshua, he frankly says to him, you're old. Kind of blunt talk from the word of God, but it's true. Joshua, you're old and something has to be done. That's the implication. You're old. At this point, Joshua's probably in his 80s at least. And something has to be done because the land has been basically conquered. You can see from those initial verses there that there are portions and pockets of, of Palestine that aren't quite uh, captured yet. But, but basically what the Lord is saying here is that uh, the, the land essentially has been taken care of. And now it's time to apportion uh, the various lots to the tribes of Israel. That was one of Joshua's responsibilities as the mediator of the covenant. And Joshua is the only one who has the legal uh, capacity to apportion the land because he is the mediator of the covenant. Not just anyone can do this. And so there's a timeliness here. And Joshua apportioning out this land as he is advanced in age. And so what we will see here now as we work our way through the rest of the book of Joshua is a transition from war to a transition to a distribution of the inheritance. And, and as that is the backdrop then uh, to what goes on in chapter 22, this distribution of the land, we see immediately as Joshua obeys the command of the Lord and begins to distribute the inheritance as he's been commanded, that it gives rise to sibling rivalry. Uh, you have the eastern tribes uh, gathering up together to go to war against the eastern tribes. What we're going to see here, then, as we look uh, at this chapter, particularly chapter 22 this morning, and this is the, the message to be uh, communicated. This is the intent of the author, as we think about this, that Israel will not enjoy the possession of its inheritance unless it worships the Lord biblically as God has commanded. Or let's put it positively. Israel will enjoy God's blessing as they worship God according to his word. That's the main idea. That is the substance which is to be communicated in chapter 22. You have the land, Israel, by the grace of God. You will enjoy the land by obedience to God. By worshiping as he has commanded Let's come back to chapter 22 then and begin to examine its parts. And notice, first of all, that the eastern tribes are set to take possession of their inheritance. Joshua says to them in verse 2 of chapter 22, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. What does he mean by this? Well, if you go to Numbers 32, which we are not going to do, you will find that as um, these tribes here particularly Reuben and Gad, that came into this uh, particular location, which is east of the Jordan, they saw that this land that they wanted to inherit was particularly suitable for ranching. And the Word of God tells us they had exceedingly large flocks, a lot of cattle, goats, and sheep, and so on. And so uh, they looked at this land, and they set their heart and affections upon it because it was perfect. It was suitable for who they were. And so they come to Moses and they say, Moses, instead of uh, trudging on across the Jordan River and, and, and having our possession in, in the land on the, on the west side of the Jordan, what we would like is this land right here. We're cattle ranchers and this is cattle ranching land. 
And Moses, Moses' heart fell, it says. The word of God says Moses was discouraged. Not only that, he admonished them. He said, you are acting just like your fathers did 40 years ago at Kadesh when we were poised on the brink of the, Can- the land of Canaan to go conquer the inhabitants. Those forefathers discouraged Israel from attacking the land. And now we're here on the brink of conquest again, and you are putting another stumbling block in the way of the rest of the people of Israel by seeking to take this land here and not go forward. Well, the resolution of the problem was that uh, they said, well, we will leave our our women and our children and our cattle behind, and we'll send forth our warriors, and they'll go fight with you. And then when the conquest is over, we'll return to this, our land of inheritance. And Moses agreed to that. And we referenced that back in chapter 1. We began our series in the book of Joshua. We said uh, Joshua had many obstacles before him as he stood on the brink of the Jordan River preparing uh, to lead Israel in conquest of the land. We said the river itself is an obstacle. The stubbornness and rebelliousness of the people of God is an obstacle. Uh, The size of the opponent is an obstacle. But there was another obstacle. There was this obstacle of getting these two and a half tribes to follow through on their agreement. And we noted that the Word of God went out of its way uh, to include this episode of Joshua going to the leaders of Reuben and Gad and half Manasseh and saying, you have a responsibility based upon a promise you made to Moses to go fight. And so they agreed. Now Joshua, as he um, distributes the land of their inheritance to them, it was already theirs by, by legal right, but he has a ceremony in the face of all of Israel as he sends these tribes off. And, and the first thing he does here is he commends them. He says, you have done all that we have asked. Uh, Joshua goes out of his way uh, to commend them and to uh, explain the lengths of their obedience. You've kept all the Moses who serve the Lord commanded. You have listened to my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brother these many days to this day, but have checked kept the charge of the commandment, the Lord your God. So first of all, Joshua commends before he sends. But then secondly, and notice he does send them. Verse 4 says, The Lord your God has given rest to your brothers, therefore turn now and go to your tents, to the land of your possession. Verse 6, he blesses them when he sends them away. Verse 8, notice what they return home with. He says, Go to your tents with great riches, with very much livestock, with silver and gold and bronze and iron and many uh, clothes. You see, in in every way here, as as you look at this send-off, what you see is the the grace of God to Israel accented. Uh, They have a possession which they didn't pay for, which is now theirs. Uh, They have... Uh, riches, which they did not have before the war started. And, and particularly, as you begin to survey the sweep of this land which they have taken in, you realize that this is all God's grace. This is God's good gift to them. For instance, we're told in, in Numbers 32 that it was very suitable land for ranching. As you think about this land which is uh, set forth for them to inherit, You see throughout the rest of the word of God, it is indeed very suitable land. Psalm 22 uh, praises the bulls and livestock of of Bashan as as strong. 
It describes the oak forests and singles out their thickness and their majesty, pointing us to the significant uh, resources that are theirs because of the, the layout of the land. Its plains are described as beautiful and extensive. You see, uh, what the word does here is it accents the grace of God to these tribes. And it doesn't just accent the grace of God in terms of the gift of the land. It also accents the grace of God in the means of obtaining the land. If we had read all the way through chapter 13, you would have noticed repeatedly uh, the references to the old people who inhabited the land. The, the conquest of former kings and peoples and nations who held that land. And, and what we find in that is as we survey those battles that are referred to there, in, El, in all of those instances, it was the Lord who fought for Israel, and it was the Lord who gave them the land. And so what Joshua is doing here, as he sends them off to their land, he accents the grace of God to them. So what he's saying is that God is a good gift-giving God, and whatever it is that you have in your possession, Reuben, Gad, Haftive, Manasseh, it's all because God is good, and God gives good gifts. Remember that, Israel, when you enjoy the possession of the land, remember that it's because of God's goodness to you. What he's done here is he's prepared them now for the charge, which you see in verse 5. He says, only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant Lord, has commanded you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and hold fast to him and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. See what Joshua has done is he's, he's placed the foundation of obedience on the prior God, uh, grace of God given to them. He says, here is why you're to obey. God has given you everything. He's given you your land, he's given you your possessions, he's given you livestock, he's given you riches, he's given you all. Now here's what you're supposed to do. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. He summarizes the law, that's right out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul. Joshua spotlights the focus of the law here. Not on external rituals and ceremonies, but on the heart. You see, when God gives things by grace to his people, it's to affect the heart. It's to affect the heart. It's to, it's to not only initiate us into a relationship we didn't deserve, but that initiation of that relationship is to engender a thankfulness and gratitude and love in our hearts for God. And out of that love, then Joshua said, here's how you practically and concretely show God in return that you're thankful. You love him with all of your heart. It puzzles me how it could have ever have happened that in Jesus' day, by the time that you get there, Jesus has to constantly admonish and reprimand the fundamentalists among Israel, the Pharisees, and repeatedly tell them that it's not about the external ceremonies. It's not about your external obedience and righteousness. It's about the heart. Jesus repeatedly tells the Pharisees. You've misunderstood the law. If you thought the law was all about a, a checkbox and a list of things, do this, did that, uh, did the other thing, then you misunderstood the law. The law was about loving the Lord your God with all of your heart. For he made you a people who are great in number and rich beyond 
your abilities and expectations. They were to love the Lord for all that he had done. As they were fording the Jordan River, back on their, on their homeward way, so weighed down with gold and silver and bronze and riches that they almost sink as they walk across the river. And they're supposed to say to themselves, we're to love the Lord our God. Well, they sit there and they ranch on the beautiful hillsides and plains of, of Gilead and Bashan. And they're to remember this is from God and His grace, and they're to love God with all their heart, with all their soul. As they sit under the majestic oak trees and enjoy their shade on a, sun, a sunny afternoon, they're supposed to remember it's a gift from the Lord, and they are to obey God with all their heart and with all their soul. And you know, when you see this send-off ceremony, you, you have the highest hopes, don't you? It looks like it could actually go well. Joshua has commended the tribes. They seem grateful. The law seems to be clear. Everybody knows where they're going, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, why they're supposed to do it. You'd never anticipate what happened in verse 10, would you? The narrative turns. They erect an altar. Look at verse 10. And they came to the region of the Jordan, which is in the land of Canaan, the sons of Reuben, and the sons of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. A couple of facts that we learn about this altar when we look at it. First of all, this is large. Where it's located, scholars aren't sure, but it probably is on the eastern side. And I would argue that based upon the admonition of Phinehas, which I want to come back and look at in more detail. But Phinehas basically says, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross over to the land of possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands. It seems to suggest that they had to erect an altar. At least that was how the western tribes looked at it. That they erected an altar on the east side, on their side, in order to offer sacrifices to purify their land from wickedness. So it's probably on their side. It's large. The, the next thing that we learn about, the other detail, is that it's a copy of the altar which is in the house of the Lord on the west side of the Jordan. Now, this immediately sent shockwaves throughout Israel. Look at verse 11. The sons of Israel heard it. Behold, the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half of Manasseh, have built an altar at the frontier of the land. On the side belonged the sons of Israel. And when they heard of it, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel gathered themselves at Shiloh to go up to war. Immediately, it sets off sibling rivalry. Immediately, the tribes gather, the nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan, gather together at Shiloh. Why do they do this, though? Is it just a, a case of a sibling rivalry? You know how brothers just don't get along when they grow up sometimes. They just fight for no reason at all. No, it was a real problem here in this altar because according to Deuteronomy chapter 12, when Israel entered into the land of Canaan, the word of God said explicitly, when you cross the Jordan and he give you rest from your enemies, it shall come to pass the Lord will choose a place for his name to dwell and there you shall bring all that I command you, burnt offerings, sacrifices, and tithes. 
You see, the law says explicitly that once the land is settled, and once the land is divided, and once the tabernacle of the Lord is set up in a particular place where God ordains, you cannot set up another altar for sacrifice, and you can only worship in this one spot according to the one way that God has prescribed. He tied his blessing to the people of Israel, to their faithfulness in observing this command to worship where, when, and how God commanded. And so naturally, when the tribes hear this, they gather together for war. They have to. If you go on to Deuteronomy chapter 13, you see it's an explicit requirement. God commands Israel that if at any time the, uh, one of the tribes begins to engage in idolatrous practice, or any city, all the nations were to gather together, they were to investigate the matter, and they found them to be engaging in idolatry, they were to immediately go up to war, they were to kill every man, woman, and child, they were to kill all the beasts, they were to take all the possessions, they were to dump them in the town square, and light a fire to it, and never rebuild the city ever again. God told Israel, do not mess around with idolatry. This is the one thing that God will not tolerate. It brings nuclear destruction on any town that engages in it. So Israel was taking the law seriously here. Those nine and a half tribes on the western side of the Jordan are taking God's law seriously. They gather at Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle of the Lord had been placed. You read that in Joshua 18. They do that to symbolize their unity. Their unity is found in their worship, their one way of worshiping God. They gather there. They go up to war. And notice the Word of God tells us who they send off to investigate this and to confront their brothers on the eastern side. It says, The sons of Israel sent to the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, into the land of Gilead, Phineas. Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, and say, well, what's so serious about sending Phineas? Well, because if you know your Bible, you know in Numbers 25, he fended off a plague of the Lord against Israel when they were engaging in idolatry at Baal Peor, which he brings up here a little bit later on. He, he, he fended off the plague by taking a spear. And this guy's a priest, by the way. He's a priest, he's a, he's a minister of, uh, of God. He took a spear and he followed a couple of idolaters and adulterers into their tent and he chucked it so it went through both of them and impaled them to wall and he killed them. Euphineas does not mess around when God's word is being violated. He just really doesn't have any time or patience for people who are going to engage in adultery and idolatry. He's just not going to put up with it. And so it, it signals to us that this, this group, this coalition of tribes here is serious because they send Phineas to go confront these idolaters, or at least that's what they think. And as and, and he, he confronts them, verse 15, you see what he says. He says, what is this unfaithful act which you have committed against the God of Israel? Turning away from following the Lord, building yourselves an altar to rebel against the Lord this day. He says, what you have done here is very similar to what Achan did. And, and, and remember what happened when Achan sinned against the Lord and he disobeyed the law? What happened? Was it just Achan and his house that suffered? Oh, you remember that Israel went down to a humiliating defeat. The Lord was reproached before the nations. So he says, what you're doing is just 
like what Achan did. He threatened them with the wrath of the Lord in verse 18. He said he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel tomorrow. And thirdly, notice what his admonition contains. It contains radical treatment for sin. Look at verse 19. He says, if the land of your possession is unclean, cross into the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take possession among us. Do not rebel against the Lord. What Phineas uh, admonishes here and suggests is very similar to what Jesus suggests in the law, doesn't he? In the New Testament, he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to enter into eternal life maimed rather than go to hell with two good appendages. You see, the radical treatment for sin here is that whatever it takes, people of God, get out of your sin. And make the worship of the Lord your priority. Notice that is what Phidias says. If living where you live causes you to sin, then leave. If the circumstances of your life cause you to follow your own desires rather than to follow the law of God, then leave. If the pursuit of material possessions causes you to miss the worship of God and His people, then quit your job. Put God and His worship first. That's the admonition. You see, Phineas is making it plain as day. Their entire um, economic well-being was based upon where they lived. The land which was perfect for cattle ranching. And what Phineas proposes is they give up their economic stability to place God first. Place God and His worship First, that is to go above their economic stability, their social stability, and their own sense of well-being. He says, God comes first. Phinehas organizes what ought to be the priorities of God's people everywhere in all times. God and his worship first. Me and my pursuits second. The admonition, people of God, from the passage this morning is that whatever is standing in your way of worshiping God, when he says and how he says, needs to be set aside and forsaken and God has to be put first. You're not going to be surprised what comes next. When I say I'm completely amazed that Christians don't get this. Completely amazed. If an opportunity comes up to make an extra buck, and that conflicts with the worship of God, what are you going to choose? Some will say, well, I've got to take the extra buck because you never know when a rainy day is going to come. If an opportunity for a social gathering comes up, and that conflicts with the word of God, well, you never know. This might be the last time we see our family. You never, you never know. The, uh, the, these friends are so important to us. What if they move out of town? We don't ever get to have a chance to enjoy this again. Maybe we should skip the worship of God. 
Or what if the alarm goes off on Sunday morning and we didn't get to sleep till real early on Sunday morning? Wouldn't it be better for us to get our sleep and sustain our health? After all, that's important too. Miss the worship of God. You know, the problem with this is, it's not just that these kinds of things happen once or twice or here or there. The distressing trend that I continue to see, and not just in this church, but all around me, is that people choose themselves rather than the Lord and His worship. If any has, says it very straight for all of us to hear this morning, if the land of your possession is unclean, then cross into the land of possession of the Lord and take possession among us. He prioritizes what ought to be the priority for the saints. God first, us second. Well, fortunately, and I say fortunately, biblically speaking here, this was all a big misunderstanding. (laughs) A lot of good admonition flowed out of it. It was really good to see how Israel sustained this first test to their unity and whether they're going to obey the Lord. But, you know, look at what the, the eastern tribe said. They said, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, the Lord. He knows, and may Israel itself know, if it was a rebellion or if an unfaithful act against the Lord uh, does not save us this day. In other words, if they appeal immediately to the Lord and they repeat the name twice, the Lord, the God, the Mighty One, the Lord, the God, the Mighty One, they're basically saying, let Him figure it out. Let Him search the heart. And they say, here's what we're trying to do. This is all a big misunderstanding. Look at their rationale. They built this this altar to ensure their unity. Verse 24 says, truly, we have done this out of concern for a reason, saying, in time to come, your sons may say to our sons, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between us and you, you sons of Reuben, you sons of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your sons may make our sons stop fearing the Lord. You see, as they go into their inheritance, they are feeling very uneasy. They have left their women and their children and their cattle behind. They have spent years fighting for Israel to gain uh, possession of the land of Canaan. They have been commended. They are going home with riches. They had a nice send-off ceremony. They had a great admonition. But as they cross that Jordan and they look back and they see the western side of the land, the rearview mirror, something is bothering them. Won't it happen one of these days after uh, all the relationships that we have with our brothers and sisters on this side of the, the river over here? What happens when we die off and pretty soon they don't remember those good feelings and those good associations and those good relationships that we had? It might just happen. That when they look across those, uh, those raging rapids of the Jordan and they see us on the hills over there uh, grazing our cattle, that they're going to say to themselves, they're not really the people of God. They're not really the people of God because if they were, they'd live on this side of the Jordan. That kind of back and forth sibling rivalry, the, the, the eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh said, will make their sons stop fearing the Lord. So they said, we built it for unity. We built it for the sake of unity. Hmm. How's that unity? 
How's that unity if it's going to cause the tribes to rise up against them and go to war? Well, look at the answer in verse 26 and 27. The argument here is not that but this. Not that but this. Let us, verse 26, therefore we said, let us build an altar, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice, rather be a witness between us and you, between our generations after this, that we are to perform the service of the Lord before him with our burnt offerings, with our sacrifice, with our peace offerings, that your sons will not say in time to come, you have no portion of the Lord. Not this, but that. In other words, we didn't build this for false worship. We didn't build this for expediency's sake. We didn't build it because that would be more convenient for us to have an altar on our side where we could offer our sacrifices and you can do your thing over there. They said, we didn't do it for any of that. We did it so that it would be a witness so that when your tribes walk up to the Jordan River and they see us way over there on the hillsides farming our cattle and our, our cows and our goats and our sheep, you're going to see that huge monument right there to our unity. You are going to see right there in that altar a huge monument to our commitment to what? To the worship of the Lord. You are going to see in that enormous altar, which is a copy of the altar in the sanctuary in the house of the Lord, you are going to see that we are united with you in worship. We worship the same God, the same way, in the same place. That's the point of this. No sacrifices are ever to be offered on this altar. They are not saying, well, our unity consists in that we worship just like you do on this side of the Jordan. See, we're all the same here. No. They worship God exactly as God commanded, which is in the same way, in the same place, on the same altar. That's what God required. And they said this replica, this copy of that altar is there to stand for all generations who might say, well, you're different. You live on the other side of the Jordan. Is to always say, no, we're the same. We're the same covenant people because we participate in the same altar of sacrifice. What has pleased the western tribes significantly, it says that when Phinehas, the priest, and the leaders of the congregation, even the heads of the families of Israel with them, heard the words which the sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the sons of Manasseh spoke, it pleased them. And they said, today we know the Lord is in our midst. It looks like the whole problem has been solved. And I want you to understand what solved the problem. What solved the problem was that they understood that the tribes on the east had the same commitment to the purity of God's worship that the ones on the western side had. I want you to see what united them. One form of worship in the one way God prescribed in the one place where God prescribed it. In other words, worship united the people of God. Several applications flow from that as we wind our way to conclusion this morning. First of all, the true worship of God is defined by the law. The true worship of God is defined by the law. As you look at both sides of the argument here, the western tribe side and the eastern uh, side's tribe, uh, notice that they both appealed to the law. The western tribes come to them and say, you're not supposed to have this altar here. 
Uh, Deuteronomy 12 says there's a centralized worship center. It's wherever the Lord places his name. The eastern tribes do not dispute that at all. They said, we know that. This altar is a mere copy. They at no time dispute the fact that the law is the objective reference point to establish what's right about worship. Not one time do they deviate from that, which tells us that what resolves worship disputes is not feelings, emotions, desires, preferences, or traditions. Very important to hear now, not feelings, emotions, desires, preferences, or even traditions. What unites and what defines is God's Word. You know, if we could just resolve to accept that as the objective standard for figuring out what we're to do in worship, it'd put an end to the so-called worship wars in our own Reformed churches. By the way, it's our confessional standard. The regulative principle of worship is that we are to worship God in no other way than He has commanded in His Word. One of the key passages to defend that is Deuteronomy chapter 12. Both of these sets of tribes agree on that as the standard which defines what is right and wrong in worship. If we just agreed to that, we could put to rest a lot of the problems by simply saying, what does God command? And then do it. The problem with us is rather do what we want. Rather go with what our preferred taste is. Follow our own opinions. Take polls. Find out what's the cutting edge. See what people like. But that's not the way they resolve this. The western tribes did not go to see whether it just worked better for them to have an altar on the other side of the Jordan. More expedient. No, they said this is what the word of God teaches. Unfortunately, the eastern tribes agreed to that as well. Pure worship is defined by the law. Second of all, true worship solidifies the unity of the church. Remember here, as you see this again in 26 and 27... Um, blood is about to be spilled. Uh, remember, this coalition, this, this group of people goes up to the eastern tribes with swords drawn and said, you know what, uh, there's, there's 150,000 soldiers just like us bearing swords behind us. We mean business here. If you don't take that altar down and forsake your false worship, you're going to die. Well, notice the response. We did not build this altar as an offering for sacrifice. In other words, what they are saying, this altar is about a symbol of the unity we have in our worship. We're still going to go worship on the western side. What resolved the problem, what maintained the unity of God's people, was their commitment to the one worship of the one God in the one place that that one God prescribed. The unity of the church, that's what this teaches, the unity of the church rests on its unity in worship. I didn't make this up. This is God's word. The unity of God's people rested in their unity in worship. That unity in worship is founded upon worshiping God 
exactly how he is commanded, not adding to and not taking away. You cannot change the externalities of worship and say, well, we at least maintain the same doctrine. That's not what they did to resolve the dispute. They didn't say, well, we all agree in the one God, but you know what? It's more convenient to worship over here. We have great ideas about how to do it here. They're a little bit more creative and different than what you're doing over there. It kind of speaks to the people in the countryside, whereas yours is more uh, cosmopolitan. No. There's one worship of the one God in the one way he commanded the one place. With that in view, with that in view, that it's unity is, is reinforced and based upon our common commitment to worship God how he has commanded. It boggles my mind that you see churches today all around us offering different styles of worship at different times on Sundays and Saturdays. There's a mega church around the corner from my house that has an enormous sign on the wall, at least several signs on their walls, uh, proudly advertising different worship times and different styles. Come to one of our different worship times with one of our different styles. So I went to the website and I said, well, I wonder what the different styles are. Well, at 9 a.m. they have a worship with full choir, soaring orchestra, combining the best of the past with the best of the present. But at 11 o'clock they have harmonious vocals, rhythm, and energetic time of worship. And in another format, at both 9 and 11, they have guitar-driven, band-led worship with an emphasis on energy and passion. And that's supposed to reinforce their unity? We have three different kinds of worship services going on three different times. It makes you wonder, who are you worshiping? Is God different at 9 than he is at 11? Does he like orchestras at 9 and and rhythm the blues at 11 o'clock? What is this? It says, ask the question. Who is the worship for? Who is it for? It seems to me they're following a regulative principle. It's just the wrong one. It's the regulative principle is what what do men want? And then we'll do it. Figure out what the people want and we'll give it to them. But you know, the regulative principle of God's word is just the opposite. It's figure out what God wants and give it to him in worship. I repeat to you the words of Deuteronomy chapter 12. Whatever I command you, be careful to do. You shall not add. You shall not take it away. And yet, the odd thing is that when you stand up and you call people out for this, the people who are open to diversity are the ones who are applauded as being the ones who are promoting the unity. Because after all, it's argued, well, they're setting their opinions aside and their preferences aside. They're just figuring out what the people want. You're making people do just one thing, and it's narrow-minded, and it's divisive. Wish it were that easy. It was my opinion. I'm happy to set it aside tomorrow. They're not setting aside opinions. They're setting aside God and his law. There's one worship prescribed by the one God to be done in the one way he commands. That's what God requires.
One last thing here, and I'll conclude. And that is that standing up for the purity of worship is commendable and biblical. Standing up for the purity of worship is commendable and biblical. John Calvin says, Here then we have an illustrious display of piety, teaching us that if we see the pure worship of God corrupted, we must be strenuous to the utmost of our ability in vindicating it. The sword indeed has not been committed to the hands of all, but everyone must, according to his call and office, study manfully and firmly to maintain the purity of religion against all corruption. What does he mean? He means it's your job. It's your job to be vigilant just as the Western tribes were vigilant for the worship of God, to know, first of all, what God commands, and second of all, to make sure the leaders of the church are following the word of God. You are called, people of God, to insist that God is worshipped how God commands. You would open your Bible and patiently and lovingly go to the leadership of the church when it's out of accord with the scripture and say respectfully and humbly and charitably, this is what my Bible says and I don't see this in the Bible. You are to stand for what is right. That's what honors God. And when you honor God in that way by insisting that church be conducted how God requires, You unite the church. The only unity that the church has is not a unity in numbers, not a unity in relationships, not a unity around preferences, ideologies, places, or times. The only unity that the church truly has is a unity in truth. God help us to heed the admonitions of the sibling rivalry. May he help us to stand for the pure worship of God. For the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.